relatively speaking, a long chapter in the New Testament, but I would like to read the entire thing. So please be mindful, this is God's Word we're listening to. Let's try to get the gist, the message of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, as we begin reading at verse 1. Hear now God's Word. Now even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and above it cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak severally. Now these things, having been thus prepared, the priest go in continually into the first tabernacle accomplishing the services, but into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, this signifying, that the way into the holy place hath not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle is yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and divers washings, carnal ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify into the cleanness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it, For a testament is of force, where there hath been death, for it doth never avail while he that made it liveth. Wherefore, even the first covenant hath not been dedicated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the bread of the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to youward. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with the blood. And according to the law, I say, almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, 
as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Else must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. And thus far the reading of God's word. Throughout the history of man, because men have felt alienated from God or from the supernatural forces of the universe, throughout man's history you will find in almost all societies the development of a priesthood, and especially a high priesthood. That's one of the interesting developments in uh, the study of comparative religions. We can see that apart from modern secular thought, throughout history every culture has in one way or another had a group of men set apart to do priestly work, and by that I mean to do work that deals with the supernatural. Men who are supposed to be experts in, in telling us on how to get right with the forces of the universe or with God or to placate the gods and get their favors so that we'll have rain for our crops or we'll have uh, uh, good health in our families or there might be uh, uh, offerings made so that a woman will have a baby because the gods have kept her from having a baby up to this point. Whatever it may be, heathen religions as well as the Christian and the Jewish religion, have had their priests and their priesthood, magic men or medicine men, diviners or priests. In one way or another, whatever you call them, there has been this special group of men that stand between two things. First, the people in general, those who are not priests, and whatever the supernatural forces or personalities of this universe may be whether it be um, the gods, as in Greek mythology, or the god Jehovah that the Jews worship, or whether it's just how to cure things and to get the secrets of the universe in some impersonal way, there has always been this person who mediates, who goes in between the people in general and the supernatural. The priest deals with religious matters, and in particular, the priest intercedes for the people, to gain from the supernatural forces, from God or the gods, the priest intervenes to gain either truth and insight. Think of a medicine man who wants to know how to cure some strange disease. He intercedes for the people to find out through some mystical insight what should be done. Or the priest intercedes to gain, usually, peace and acceptance with the gods, the favor of God, to be made right with the forces of the universe. Priests are very important, then, in societies. Uh, priests in most societies tend to become as important as the political rulers or actually become the political rulers themselves in most societies. Because since the priest intercedes for the sake of the people, since the well-being of the people depends so much upon the priest and what he knows and how he can secure the favor of God, the priests are very highly exalted people in the culture. Now, the Bible explains to us why there is this universal feeling for the need of a priest. The Bible tells us, within terms of man's rebellion against God, why people think they need an intercessor, why people feel the need for a mediator to go before them, before God. 
The Bible says the reason for that is that all men have bad consciences. All men feel guilty. All men feel separated from God. And you know, the worst part of this is that they don't just feel separated from God. The Bible says they are separated from God. You see, and there's a universal testimony to that fact of sin in the truth that all cultures are looking for a priest to get them back to God, to find out about God, to be made right with him. For you see, it doesn't make any difference whether you lived a thousand years before Christ or a thousand years after or nearly two thousand years after as we do today. No matter when you live and no matter what culture you live in, whether it's Eastern, whether it's Western, no matter who you are and where you live, the fact is you live a self-centered life. A self-centered life. Now, we tend to think when we use the word self-centered of people who are just grabby and always clutching for things and wanting attention. No, I don't mean that. I mean, although that is one expression of a self-centered life. The fact is that all of us have as the focus of our life ourselves, our own well-being. We all tend to think of number one, and that's yourself. And in so doing, we tend to live unloving lives, too. We don't live self-sacrificially for others. We don't care so much about the well-being of our neighbor as we do about our own well-being. And if that means if I'm going to get on top economically and if I'm going to have to push a few people down on the way up, well, that's just the way it is. After all, that's life. This is a dog-eat-dog world and so forth and so on. Think about, just think about your attitudes on the freeway. Enough said, right? <laughs> just think about how you drive and what you think. Should I let that guy cut in front of me? Am I going to let him get... No, we tend to be self-centered and unloving people. But, you see, apart from that perhaps lighthearted illustration, to get to the very heart of the matter is all of our life is characterized by that. And that's true of people who don't have freeways, people who don't live in the 20th century, people who don't live in California or the United States. It's true of everybody. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know when you come short of God's glory, when you don't live the way he wants you to, then you have a tendency to say, I'm not sure I want to talk to God. I don't want to get too close because I know that I'm not right with him. Now all men know and all women know that they aren't right with God. And so they have a hesitation about going to him. They are alienated from their creator. Psalm 5 verse 4 puts it this way, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil, and with you the wicked cannot dwell. And people don't need to be told that verbally. Whether they can verbalize it or write it down on a piece of paper or not, they all know it in their heart of hearts. They know that God can't dwell with evil, and they are evil. They are wrong in his eyes. There's something that stands in the way of dealing with God. And so there are priests. Now this morning I want to look at the priests that the Bible tells us about. According to the Bible, priests need to offer sacrifice to God. You say, well, that's not uniquely biblical. If you study comparative religions, you know that many priests offer sacrifice. Oh, but there's a real important difference that I want you to learn about this morning. Priests in pagan religions do offer sacrifices, but in all pagan religions, priests offer sacrifices to their gods in order, essentially, in order to bribe them, to buy their favor. Sacrifice is a means by which you avert the attention of God to your sin 
or if you will, you take away the bad mood that the gods are in, and that's why you're not getting rain and crops and all the rest, by offering them gifts, offering them sacrifices. And of course, the gods are supposed to be interested in these sacrifices, allegedly because they eat the sacrifice and they're hungry. The gods are in need, the gods are in a bad mood, or the gods just need to be bribed. Now you see, in those religions where you have that approach to God, I, I think you can see there's something terribly wrong here. It doesn't take a whole lot of biblical training to see that that approach to God is just bound to be mistaken. I mean, if God gets hungry and needs the sacrifice, or if God is so weak-minded that you can bribe him and pay him off so that he'll finally give you rain or crops or a baby or whatever it is you're looking for, then you've got a very weak and adequate God, probably not a God at all, as a matter of fact. In biblical religion, the priests offer sacrifices, but for a much different reason not to bribe God, not to get him out of a bad mood. Sacrifices in the Bible involve substitutionary blood atonement. That calls for a little explanation, substitutionary blood atonement. You see, the Bible tells us that all men are sinful because at first man rebelled against God. And when man rebelled against God, God declared the penalty to be death. Just think about this. God is the source of life. He is our creator, and anybody who lives must live then on God's terms. And when we don't live on God's terms, then we don't have the right to the life that he represents and that he granted to us. And so God said to Adam and Eve, In the day that you eat thereof, of the forbidden tree, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Not I'll be in a bad mood, and I want you to now buy my favor, and win my love by giving me presents. God doesn't get hungry. You know, in the, in the biblical approach to sacrifices, God never eats the sacrifices. And in fact, God says in the Psalms, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, because I don't need you. God is above anything that we can offer him. God is the sovereign Lord creator, and we are dependent upon him for everything. So... God tells us that if we're going to make sacrifice, it's not for the sake of pleasing him or giving him a meal or getting him out of a bad mood. It's because death must come into the picture. Paul puts it this way in Romans, the sixth chapter, the wages of sin is death. When we don't live in harmony with the source of our life, we cannot enjoy the life that we've been living. The wages of sin is death. Thus, when God ordained a priesthood among his people, he required that priests would bring atoning sacrifice to him. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse 1, puts it this way. For every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Why did God appoint a high priest? So the high priest could come and make a sacrifice for sin. Now what sacrifice is required for sin? Well, you know the answer already. The wages of sin is death. And so the sacrifice must be a bloody sacrifice. It must be a sacrifice representing death. The sacrificial animal that was brought by the Hebrews to their priest and eventually to the high priest, that sacrificial animal stood in the place of the sinner. That's why I said earlier it was substitutionary. It was the substitute for the sinner. 
the sinner would come and lay his hands upon the ox or his hands upon the lamb, thereby symbolizing the transference of his sin and guilt to the animal, then the animal was slain. God had taught earlier in Genesis, the ninth chapter, and repeats in the law of sacrifice, Leviticus 17 and elsewhere, God had taught that the life is represented by the blood. Life is in the blood. And therefore, if life is to be sacrificed, if life is to be taken away because of sin, there must be the shedding of blood. Not because God is bloodthirsty, not because he eats the sacrifices, not because he's in a bad mood and is being bought off, but because the sinner must die in the eyes of God. And that's why Hebrews 9, verse 22, which we read this morning in our lesson, Hebrews 9 says, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission because apart from death, the price of sin hasn't been paid. And so we can't be released from the penalty that's due to us. There's no way we can be made right with God and come back into his favor apart from death. And so on the great yearly day of atonement, the Old Testament taught that the high priest should enter into the holiest place. Hebrews 9 describes for us, there was one tabernacle, an outer one, called the holy place, wherein certain articles necessary for the religious worship of the people and the ritual of the people were to be found. But then there was a second tabernacle, the holy of holies. Hebrew expression meaning the very holiest place. And it was the very holiest because the Ark of the Covenant was there. <clears throat> and the one who dwelt in the holiest place above the Ark of the Covenant, manifesting his presence in the Shekinah glory, was the Lord God Jehovah the Creator Almighty. And the high priest could come before him only once a year. And it was a very dreadful thing to come before the very presence of God. In fact, there was a veil that covered that holy place that was very thick. And the priest, when they went in, according to Jewish custom and tradition, this isn't ordained in the law, but they knew it was such a dreadful thing that the priest would always have a rope tied around his ankle that trailed out of the holiest place. Because if he went before the very presence of God to offer sacrifice and he did it improperly, if he went in there and his own sins had not been forgiven, if he was not an adequate priest, he would be struck dead. And then the people would say, well, since we aren't a high priest, how can we remove the body? And so they, they always required the high priest to have that rope trailing on his ankle so they could pull the corpse out if they had to. You see, they took this very seriously to come before the presence of God. And what was he to do on that day of atonement? He was to take the blood of sacrifice and sprinkle it upon the ark to indicate that the death has taken place so that God can now be pleased with his people. Pleased not because they've bought him off, pleased because the penalty for sin has been paid. By the way, you know what they called the lid of the ark of the covenant upon which the blood of atonement was sprinkled the mercy seat the mercy seat where God is seated displaying his mercy to his people well that's all well and good but you see there's a problem in Hebrews the ninth chapter although it's elsewhere in Hebrews as well Hebrews the ninth chapter tells us there's a problem it looks so very good sin calls for death 
Death is represented by the blood of the sacrificial animal. A high priest takes it in once a year. God is uh, placated. His wrath is turned aside. But the book of Hebrews tells us it's not enough. You know it's not enough. Again, you can think this out for yourself, I think. Hebrews 9, verse 9, puts it this way. Uh, speaking of the earthly tabernacle, it's a figure for the time present, according to which are offered gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect. For they're only outward things. You stop and think, why should God be pleased with just this outward show of sacrificial death when in fact the problem with us is all inside? Those outer sacrifices couldn't deal with the inner conscience of man. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, tells us, and these sacrifices were never intended to be perpetual. Verse 10 goes on, being only with meats and drinks and divers washings, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. God never intended this to be the way things would go on and on and on. It was imposed till a time of reformation, until a time of change. This wasn't God's perpetual plan for saving people. And, of course, it couldn't have been because you realize the high priest was never adequate. You know what the problem with the high priest is? You know why he had a rope tied to his ankle and was trailing out? Because he went in there as a sinner. I mean, you stop and think about it. How adequate is your intercessor if he's got the same problem as the people for whom he's interceding? You see, the priest was just one man among men. And he was as guilty as they were before God. And so the Bible says in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 7, But into the second, that is the holiest place, the high priest alone came once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. This high priest could never do the job properly because he always had to go in and sacrifice for himself and then plead with God that the sins of the people would be forgiven as well. Moreover, Hebrews, the 10th chapter, tells us that these sacrifices were offered over and over and over again. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Else would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins." But in these sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. Day by day the priest made sacrifice to God. Year by year they had the Day of Atonement. And the author of Hebrews says the very repetition of the sacrifices tells you they weren't good enough. They weren't adequate. They could only be a temporary measure. Because if they had really turned away the wrath of God from the sin of people, once would have been enough. But the fact that they went and made sacrifice and then had to come back and make sacrifice indicates that this was just a year-by-year -year or day-by-day -day provision, but never sufficient in itself. And finally, Hebrews 10, verse 4 tells us, the bottom line is, why would God be pleased with animal sacrifices when the sinner is a human being? Why would the death of an animal really take the place of a sinful human being? Hebrews 10, 4 for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And so here we have this very understandable, very reasonable, beautiful system of priesthood and sacrifice in the Old Testament, and yet we find that it's completely inadequate. 
The sacrifices couldn't cleanse the soul. They were never meant to be perpetual. The high priest had sins of his own to deal with. The sacrifices were offered over and over again, and what was sacrificed was an animal, not a human being. And so these things never accomplished the perfection that we look for. And so what are we to do? The Bible says that Jesus Christ has come as a high priest. Jesus Christ has come to fulfill that function which all cultures and all societies and all men know that they need. The need for an intercessor. One who will go between the sinner and the offended God and make things right. Jesus Christ came as that a high priest and he came in terms of the Hebrew revelation of the Old Testament to do what the high priest that came from among the Jews could never do. He came to perform a job which the Old Testament law could never accomplish in itself. Hebrews 9, verse 11 tells us, But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Christ has come as a high priest to minister not in a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but he came as a high priest to go before the very presence of God himself. It's necessary that he take a sacrifice for sin in order to appear before God. Listen to these words from Hebrews 8, the first three verses. Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not men, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Because Jesus came as a high priest, if he's going to be a priest, he must offer sacrifice to God. That's what priests do. Where will Jesus find a sacrifice adequate? Now, he is a good priest. He's a sinless priest. He can go before the very presence of God, but what can he offer God in the place of the life of the sinner? You say, well, he could take an animal sacrifice. But you already have read, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. You say, well, maybe he could offer a sinless life of someone else, but there is no one else who is sinless. And so what you have here taught... In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, is one of the most beautiful messages that you can find in the Bible. That's that in the case of this high priest, the sacrifice and the sacrificer were one and the same. That the priest was his own sacrifice. You see, when Jesus went before the presence of God, he couldn't bring anything but himself. And so what he brings is his own shed blood to appear before God for us. Hebrews 9 verse 12 puts it this way, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood entered he once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. No Old Testament priest and no Old Testament sacrifice ever obtained eternal redemption. Only Jesus could finally put an end to the ritual, finally put an end to the cycle of sacrifices. Only Jesus could finally put an end to the high priesthood of the Old Covenant and the animal sacrifices that were ordained because Jesus once for all appeared before God and obtained redemption by laying down his own life. 
We finally have not only a perfect priest, but a perfect sacrifice, and they're one and the same. Hebrews 9, 24-26 says that He appeared before God for us, a priest who did not first need to make sacrifice for his own sins, to once and forever make a sacrifice that would finally atone for sins. Look at verse 24. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place, year by year with blood not his own. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, at the end of the ages, hath he been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now today you need a priest because you know in your heart of hearts that you're not right with God. You know that you don't understand the ways of God properly, that you have paid attention to other things, worldly things, selfish things, and you know very well that you're not in a good position to plead for yourself before God. I think all of us know in our own conscience that if we were to try to go before God on our own, that the first thing God would say is, where have you been? Why is it taking you so long to take an interest in me? Why is it all of a sudden that you've decided you want to deal with me? Why didn't you come an hour ago? Why didn't you come a day ago? Why didn't you come last year? Why haven't you come day by day to me? Well, the reason you haven't come is because first you haven't cared and secondly you knew that you wouldn't be acceptable, not in yourself, and so you hesitate to come. Who will then be your priest? Who will intercede for you? You know, the glory of the Bible and the Christian religion, for all the misrepresentation that the world gives against Christianity, for all of the strange ideas people have, you see, this is the heart of the Christian message, that we have a priest and an interceder, one who will go and mediate between the people and God, and he's a perfect priest. He's a perfect priest who has done a perfect job of atoning for sin because he offered the only perfect sacrifice there is, and that was himself. The Bible tells us if you'll confess your sins in need of the Savior, if you'll come to God and say, I know that I've sinned, and I know that I'm wrong, and I know that I'm alienated from you, and that you have every right to condemn me, that your wrath and curse rest upon me, and that's due to my own doing, it's my own fault. If you'll confess your sin and trust alone in the saving work of Jesus Christ and say, God, there's only one person that I can ask to go before you, and that's your own son the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest, the self-sacrificed one, Jesus Christ. If that'll be your only trust, then you can say with the author of Hebrews in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, having then a great high priest who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You see, Jesus understands your infirmities, and Jesus understands your failings and your errors. He was tempted in every way like you are, and yet Jesus didn't sin. And instead of encouraging you to run from God and to hide from God, 
Jesus says, not only do I go before the presence of God, but I bid you to come with me. Come boldly before the very throne of grace because you have a high priest who has sacrificed himself and has secured for you the favor of God and everlasting salvation. Oh, don't wait. If you haven't come before the very throne of God and known that you're acceptable through the merits of Jesus Christ, don't wait another day and don't wait another hour. Claim Christ now as your high priest. If you will not have him be your mediator, I can assure you that no one else will do the job. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask this morning that you would hear our prayer and receive our persons, not for any good that we can offer you, our point to, for we confess our sin. that we have lived in a way which is self-centered and unloving and that has disregarded you and your requirements. We have all broken your law and therefore have no right to speak with you. We have no right to expect your favor. But we plead with you to hear us and to accept us for the sake of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered not for himself because he was sin-free, but offered for us the atoning sacrifice of his own body. Lord, we pray that you would receive us because his shed blood is the life that must be forfeited due to our sins. Receive us as alive because he died and indeed died and rose again and now is our great high priest interceding every moment for his people. We pray, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would hear these words and make them acceptable before your Father that we might have life everlasting and know your favor. For it's in your precious name and only in your name that we pray. Amen.